This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to History Goes Bump Redux. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. On this episode, we're going to be doing the Salem Witch Trials. Woo! <laughs> not that kind of witch, though. No, and we <laughs> just got back from Salem not too long ago, Kelly. We had a great time going up there. What did uh, you and Jared think of the place? Oh, we absolutely loved it. We we didn't get to spend quite as much time as we would have liked. However, we were hitting so many amazing locations in that same road trip that we really had to kind of parcel our time out. So definitely a location we'd like to get back to. Yeah, we gave up a little bit of Salem so we could do Gettysburg. But uh, yeah, we'll definitely be back there. There is so much to do there. And I was just excited for you guys to get to experience it too. I've been there three times now. It was very cool. Yeah, it was fantastic. We loved it. All right. Should we jump on in? Let's jump on in. Or maybe we should say fly on in. Oh, my. I'll probably end up like one of those Halloween witches that smashes into a tree. So how, <laughs> how about we walk on in? That's a much safer <laughs> choice for me. As Well, I don't know, Kelly. You're not very good with walking either. I Maybe know. at least the broom would keep you upright. <laughs> Salem just has a haunting air about it that oozes through every brick, tombstone, and t-shirt shop. Is it because Hocus Pocus made this the setting for the movie? Is it the scores of people who transformed this into Halloween Mecca in October? Or is it the history of witch hunts and trials and executions? Clearly, we all know it's the latter. Salem and witches have become intertwined through the years, 
and a study in human psychology surrounding the events of the Salem Witch Trials reveals a very heinous side to humanity. The use of the terminology witch hunt was inspired by the Salem Witch Trials. Today, we explore not only the historic events themselves, but what led several communities to turn on their neighbors, leading to deadly results and now spirits at unrest. Join us as we explore the history, curses, and hauntings spawned by the Salem Witch Trials. Salem witch trials are the most famous when it comes to hunting down witches. They were not the first. 30 years before the trials in Salem, Hartford, Connecticut had its own witch hunt mass hysteria. Eight-year-old Elizabeth Kelly had died mysteriously after spending time with a neighbor named Goodwife Aries. Before Elizabeth passed, she told her father that Goodwife was upon her and choking her, leading some to believe that the little girl had been possessed by Goodwife. Such possession was termed bewitchment at the time. Hartford had some experience with witch hunting, being that it was the first town in America to have hung someone for practicing witchcraft in 1647. Four other people were hung shortly thereafter. But it wasn't until little Elizabeth's death in 1662 that hysteria would manifest for the first time. When all was said and done in Hartford, seven trials had been conducted and four people were executed. In 1692, another witch hysteria broke out with no executions, but later in 1697, Another hysteria led to 11 executions. Witch hunt hysteria and Puritans were bedfellows. To understand the thinking of the Puritans, we need to trace back their superstitions to the 14th century. The belief that the devil would give humans power to harm other humans began in Europe. These beliefs traveled with the Puritans to the New World. Women were also considered weaker and easily tempted into sin. Puritans pointed to Eve for proof, and they were fearful of strong-willed women. The Puritans had a desire to purify the church as well, and they adopted rigid standards that were outlawed in much of Europe. This is why many moved to New England. Upon getting here, they discovered an unforgiving land where they had to live among people they considered to be savages. The New World was a place with dark-skinned people who wore little clothing and had what Puritans considered strange practices. Some of these indigenous people wanted to kill these strangers infiltrating their land. There was culture shock and fear for all involved. Sickness would sweep through towns in forms of plagues and yellow fever. Puritans did not understand medicine and disease, and their superstitions led them to attribute all such things to the all-powerful devil. Puritans easily fell into moral panic in which fear of social order breaking down leads to extreme reactions. This is the environment of 1692 Salem. The town of Salem was originally called Namkieg, after the nearby Namkieg River, and was founded in 1626. The first settlers were a group of immigrants from Cape Ann led by Roger Conant. A group from the Massachusetts Bay Colony led by John Endicott would join the village in 1628. They eventually decided to change the name to Salem, which is Hebrew for peace. Several decades later, the village of Salem would have anything but peace. When the young daughter and niece of Salem Village's minister Samuel Paris began having seizures and bizarre fits, the townspeople became worried. A local doctor was called in to diagnose the girls. His conclusion was that the girls had been bewitched. 
Wow, great doctor. Yeah, gotta love those local docs in <laughs> circumstances like that. I Jeez. mean, can you imagine you just come in and up? Oh, she's bewitched. Yep. Oh, my word. From our modern perspective, it's easy to laugh over such a diagnosis. Surely these girls were experiencing something else. There are many causes for seizures, and even some have suggested ergot poisoning from eating bad rye bread. Ergot is an ingredient in LSD that helps initiate hallucinations. Even more odd was that five other young girls began exhibiting the same behavior. No one understood psychology like we do today, and the power of crowd influence and pressure. The girls were gathered together and questioned, and Samuel Paris's Caribbean servant, Tichaba, soon found herself in the center of the storm. Tichaba was an Arawak Indian from South America. As a young girl, she had been kidnapped and taken to Barbados, where she was sold into slavery. Despite her portrayal as a black woman in most tellings of the narratives around the Salem witch trials, the documents from the trials do support an Indian history. Tichaba was in her teens when she came to be a servant for Samuel Paris. No one is sure if he purchased Tichaba or if she was given to him to settle a debt. There is speculation that Paris, who was unmarried at the time, may have used Tichaba for more than just household chores. Ew. Yeah. Tichaba liked to tell stories, and she would regale the young girls with strange tales. Perhaps she even taught some of them how to make herbal tinctures. And she more than likely had some spiritual beliefs that didn't line up with Puritan beliefs. Tichaba came under intense scrutiny over something she did to figure out who had bewitched Samuel Paris's daughter. She mixed the young girl's urine with rye and baked a cake called a witch cake. She then fed the cake to a dog. The dog was then supposed to reveal who the person was that had afflicted the daughter. When the Reverend heard about this, he was enraged. Details are murky here. All the young girls claimed that Tichaba had bewitched them, but one has to wonder why. Were the girls led to make this accusation by some adults? Did they do this based on the stories that Tichaba had told them? Were the girls out to get Tichaba? Reverend Paris would later beat Tichaba until she confessed she was a witch, which is why we wonder if the girls were not guided in their accusations. Tichaba was fearful about what would happen to her, and probably believed that if she accused other women, she would somehow take the focus off herself. A homeless woman named Sarah Good and an elderly non-churchgoer named Sarah Osborne were accused of practicing witchcraft by Tichaba. Tichaba claimed that there was a thriving coven in Salem, and the Salem witch hunt began. By this time, seven young girls were afflicted with contortions, fevers, and many complained that it felt like something unseen was biting and pinching them. Two of the girls, Anne Putnam and Mercy Lewis, claimed that they saw witches flying around in the early morning mists. Are they playing Quidditch? <laughs> Good Harry Potter reference there. I mean, if they're up flying around in the early morning mist, they must be playing a game or something. <laughs> It was easy for the superstitious people of Salem to believe the girls, and with Tichaba and both Sarahs being outcasts, it was easy to believe that something was evil about them. The trials began for the three accused women, and the afflicted girls continued their dramatics in the courtroom. The women were considered guilty and in need of proving their innocence. Tichaba, probably out of fear for her life, confessed to all sorts of bizarre things, including meeting Satan as both a man and a dog and claiming that she and other women rode in the air on poles. Her claims that witchcraft was indeed being practiced fueled the flames. She accused more women of joining her in ceremonies. Soon the zealotry passed to the townspeople. They too began accusing neighbors of witchcraft. 
Long-held bitterness came forward, and before long, many innocent people found themselves in jail for witchcraft. Martha Corey, Sarah Cloyce, Mary Eastie, and Rebecca Nurse were added to the list. And then there was poor Dorcas Good. She was the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good. She soon was accused of practicing witchcraft, and unbelievably, she was thrown in jail for eight months. A four-year-old kid. That's so sad. It was long enough for her to watch her mother be carried off to the gallows. The handful of girls that appeared to be afflicted by the spells of witches continued their dramatics. They twitched during trials and on the streets. They would shout out during church services and complain that the spirits of the witches were attacking them. Anne Putnam's mother even joined in revealing that repressed women can easily fall into hysteria if it means freedom from the constrictions of their lives. Unique tests were devised for revealing witches. One test was asking an accused to recite the Lord's Prayer. If the person couldn't do that or recite some scripture, then they were thought to be a witch. You better not forget how to say the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, no kidding. Accused people were also checked for witch marks. This could be any kind of birthmark or scar, but the blemish that was really sought after was an extra nipple. Uh Uh-oh. I know, I have a mole like kind of in the middle of my chest, but a little bit lower on my belly. I'm a witch. You have a third nipple. (laughs) Good grief. (laughs) But can you imagine how scary this would have been at the time? I have a big birthmark on my back. As I get older, I'm getting moles all over the place. And a lot of these women were older. So it's just normal for you to get skin blemishes. Yeah, it just happens. We're both witches. Ah! This extra nipple was thought to suckle the witch's familiars. How nice. Lovely. Another test was trial by water. If a person floated on top of the water or could survive dunking that held them underwater for several minutes, then that person was deemed a witch. Never mind that if someone drowned, it proved they were not a witch. But they were dead, so that wouldn't matter. If you did manage to survive, you'd be sent to the gallows. Great options all the way around. You're dead either way. Either you're going to drown because you're not a witch or if you somehow survive because we know they weren't witches anyway and you managed to hold your breath long enough, <laughs> Good grief. you get to be hanged. Boston itself hung four people in the Boston Commons. Confessing to being a witch could possibly save your life. And many did confess and then pointed fingers at others in order to avoid the gallows. You know, you think about this time in Salem, a lot of these men would have been learned men, I would assume, that had gone to school or something, or at least considered themselves very smart. And yet, you couldn't figure out that if you're blaming somebody for something like witchcraft and saying, well, if you confess, and then you start pointing the fingers around to other people, we'll be lenient towards you. Right. Well, who isn't going to start pointing fingers at all their neighbors and going, "Uh, yeah, she's a witch, and she's a witch, and she was in a meeting with me. Yeah, I know. Just makes horrible. Bridget Bishop was the first to stand trial. Bishop had been through three husbands by the time she stood trial. She had three children with her first husband, Captain Samuel Wesselby, who died in 1666. Uh oh, 666. Rut row. When her second husband, Thomas Oliver, died, she was accused of bewitching him to death. She was later acquitted. So, as you can see, Bridget's already on their list. They don't like this woman, and so she's been accused once before. Clearly. On our ghost tour in Salem, we crossed through a parking lot that used to be her apple orchard. She created hard apple cider to serve in her tavern, 
and many believe that her work as a barkeep is what put her under scrutiny. She was known to wear exotic clothing and bright colors, which Puritans weren't fond of either. The girls and several neighbors claim that Bridget's specter tortured them and that they had seen her turn into a cat. Bishop was charged with five counts of witchcraft, one of which accused her of bewitching a pig and driving it mad. She maintained her innocence all through the trial. Eventually, Bishop was strip-searched and examined in a humiliating way, and was found to have a witch mark, which was described as follows. The first three, namely Bishop, Nurse, and Proctor, by diligent search, have discovered a preternatural excretions of flesh between the genitals and anus much like to teats, and not usual in women, and much unlike to the other three that hath been searched by us, and that they were in all the three women near the same place." Yes, we describe this as humiliating, so you can clearly see what area they are scrutinizing. Right. So that's already humiliating enough. And then I don't know what they found here that all three women seem to have. I mean, it could be hemorrhoids. Who knows? Who knows? It could have been something simple like that. More than likely, it was nothing. Exactly. Eight days after she was ruled guilty, Bridget was hanged on Gallows Hill. People claim to smell the scent of apples and apple cider in this parking lot. And Turner Seafood Restaurant sits on the property as well. And we covered the haunts going on here in our Salem Lyceum building episode. That was episode number 392. At the age of 71, most women expect to just enjoy their gardens and grandchildren, especially in 17th century Salem. But that was not the case for Rebecca Nurse. Her witch trial would follow bishops. Rebecca was mostly bedridden, and yet the girls accused her of witchery. There was something here beneath the surface, though. Years of disputes, controversy, and hostilities over land had pitted the Reverend James Allen and Rebecca and her husband Francis against Zerubbabel Endicott and the Putnam families. So the fact that the Putnams were pointing fingers at Nurse was not surprising. Rebecca was initially found not guilty, but the main judge sent the jury judges back and they changed their verdict to guilty after several of the girls threw themselves on the ground and convulsed when the not guilty verdict was read. Rebecca was hanged with four other women on July 19th. So they come forward and say she's not guilty, and the judge sends them back basically telling, telling them, them, don't come back unless you find her guilty. Right. Just amazing. Lovely. And then for a little cherry on top, the girls threw themselves on the ground and rolled around for a bit. One man from Salem would accuse the townspeople of being silly. John Proctor and his wife were good people, and they certainly did not believe that they were surrounded by people who had sold their souls to the devil. Proctor owned 700 acres of farmland and opened a tavern that was very lucrative. He denounced the witch trials regularly. The outspoken behavior of Proctor soon turned the witch accusers on him and his pregnant wife, Elizabeth. Proctor had also beaten his young servant girl, Mary Warren, who had started having fits like the other girls. He thought beating her would make her behave. Well, obviously we know that's not what's going to work. It probably made it even more likely that he was going to be accused. True. The accusations made John the first man in Salem to be accused of being a witch. As testimony was given during Proctor's trial, the girls started acting afflicted and screamed that they saw his spirit in different parts of the courtroom. John and Elizabeth were both convicted, despite their neighbors signing petitions defending them. Proctor's wife was not hanged right away so that she could have her baby. She managed to escape execution because she held on until the witch hysteria died down. John Proctor, however, was hanged. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Unbelievably, Salem's ex-minister George Burroughs came under fire. Burroughs had attended Harvard University in 1670 and eventually served as the pastor at the Falmouth... Con- 
<laughs> he served as pastor at the foul mouth congressional church. <laughs> Wonder what he preaches there from the pulpit. Oh no. He bleep and he bleep bleeps. Oh my gosh. We have a foul mouth pastor at the foul mouth congressional church. <laughs> Congregational, dear. Whatever. Congressional. <laughs> and eventually served as the pastor at the Falmouth Congregational Church. Burroughs came to Salem Village and took over as minister after the current minister quit because of non-payment of his salary. Burroughs would become the former minister of Salem for the exact same reason a short time later. Resentments caused by that may have led to accusations against him. He was tried and found guilty, and he refused to confess. He was defiant until the end. After the noose was placed around his neck on Gallows Hill, he recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly. The townspeople were stunned because they believed witches were incapable of reciting the Lord's Prayer. Although they were moved, the execution continued at the urging of Judge Cotton Mathers. The story of Giles Corey is horrible. This 80-year-old man was very successful and owned large parcels of land. He and his wife were accused of witchcraft, and we have no doubt that the goal was to obtain his land. On a side note, Giles' wife was accused before he was, and he actually believed that she was a witch until he was accused too. So you can just imagine they're like, your wife's a witch. And he's like, you know, she does kind of treat me like a witch sometimes. And oh, my like, God. A little bit later. And we think you're a witch, too. OK, well, I'm not a witch, so she must not be a witch either. If someone confessed to being a witch, they lost all their property. Giles had sons that he wanted to pass his property on to, and he refused to allow the town to take what was rightfully his. He refused to confess. So the judges hauled him out for a little torture tactic they had devised called pressing. You see, if you're a witch, apparently you cannot be crushed to death. Giles was committed to not losing his property. And so as the board was placed on his body and the first few stones were placed atop, he called for more weight. As the judges screamed for him to confess, he continued to yell for more weight, even as his chest was weighted down. Three days later, he was nearly dead when his eyes flashed open and he hurled a curse at the judges before he asked for more weight and took his last breaths. His death proved he was innocent and his curse would live on. One thing, though, they didn't get his land. Three days after Giles' death, his wife was hanged along with seven other convicted people. These would be the last victims of the witch trials. In all, 20 innocent people lost their lives. Four people died in jail. Even two dogs were executed as witches. Nearly 200 people had been accused and jailed, and many would stay there because the law required that accused people had to foot their own care bills in jail. So if you couldn't pay your debt, you were stuck. Many wallowed in jail for months until family members or others would take pity. Tichaba became the servant of another man who paid off her jail bill. In the end, most scholars agree that while mass hysteria could have played a role, it is more than likely that people lied because of long-standing property and church disputes. The emotions and horrible deaths of the innocent have tainted Salem. Not only is Salem now synonymous with outrageous hysteria leading to the deaths of innocents, but Salem seems to be victim to curses and hauntings. Despite hundreds of years passing, some locations connected to the witch trials still stand today. Let's first look at Giles Corey Ghost and whether his curse had any effect. Before dying, he hollered, I curse you and Salem. Sheriff George Corwin was the you that Giles was referring to, and indeed, Corwin died young at the age of 30. Sheriffs have bad luck in Salem, a succession of them after Corwin developed blood issues and heart problems. 
When the sheriff's offices moved to Middleton in 1991, the blood and heart disorder stopped for the sheriff's. People claim that Giles himself haunts the Howard Street Cemetery, that's where he is buried, and his apparition appears before anything bad befalls the town. There was a huge fire in Salem in 1914. Giles appeared to several townspeople before the fire started. One has to wonder how that fire was started. Giles wasn't the only one who hurled curses, though. Sarah Good called out a curse on Reverend Nicholas Noyes, who was a part of the trials. She said to him, I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Twenty-five years later, the good reverend had an aneurysm that poured blood down his throat to the point that he choked to death. Whoa. So I don't know if the curse was real, if she had premonition, or if he just got some kind of punishment. But you know, I don't believe in coincidences. This is true. Neither do I. And now the Joshua Ward House, which now sits on the spot where George Corwin's house had once sat. Yep, that Corwin that was cursed by Giles. 25-year-old George Corwin was the high sheriff during the witchcraft trials of 1692. This important position may have been obtained through nepotism. He was the nephew of both Judge Jonathan Corwin and Judge Waite Winthrop, as well as the son-in-law of Judge Bartholomew Gedney. In his role, Sheriff Corwin escorted the condemned by cart from prison to the execution site at Proctor's Ledge on Gallows Hill. As required by law, Corwin would also confiscate the property of condemned prisoners. Not land, but belongings such as livestock, hay, apples and corn, and household goods such as kettles, pewter, furniture, and jewelry. At this time, English law allowed the seizure of felons' possessions, but this did not extend to their real estate. The worldly possessions of the married women who were convicted were considered the property of their husbands. As such, there was nothing to confiscate from the condemned married women, but the possessions of the condemned men and widows were allowed to be confiscated. These domestic goods were supposed to be inventoried and stored to help pay for the felon's jail costs and support his family. However, it is known that Sheriff Corwin sold off some of John Proctor's livestock and slaughtered and salted the rest for shipping to the West Indies. Sheriff George Corwin interrogated the accused and sometimes even participated in the torture they underwent, and many claim he enjoyed committing the torture. After Corwin died, legend claims he was buried in the basement of his home to keep the body safe from villagers who wanted to tear it apart. The Corwin family debunked this by proving he was buried in the family tomb. The home was later torn down and the Joshua Ward house was built on the property. Some of the original stones from Corwin's house can still be seen along the foundation. Joshua Ward House is a three-story brick federal-style house built in 1784. Even though it isn't open to the public, that doesn't stop people from claiming that this is the most haunted location in Salem. People who've been inside the house claim to feel as if some unseen thing is choking them. They call this entity the Strangler. Cold spots, pictures falling off walls, and books falling off shelves are blamed on the spirit of Giles Corey, who some believe is here because it had once held Corwin's house. A woman in black has been seen here, and men feel uncomfortable in the house. They are the ones usually attacked, and many believe a female victim of the trials is seeking revenge against Corwin at his former home. A business in the house in 1981 was Carson Realty, and they were hosting a Christmas party. An employee started snapping Polaroids. He took a picture of a co-worker in front of some of the decorations, and when the Polaroid developed, it revealed an extremely pale woman with a head full of dark curly hair standing where the co-worker had been. The co-worker was not in the picture at all. 
so weird. It makes you think that the entity must have covered up the person who was supposed to be in the picture. Right. Next, we have the old Bearing Point Cemetery, and this was a great location. It was where our ghost tour ended the evening we took it. We took a picture in front of it with Gabrielle Montevici and her daughter, who joined us on that tour. What did you think of the cemetery? Oh, it was very, very cool, very moving. It was really neat to come back there the next day also and be able to walk through it during the day. Yeah, and some of those burials are so old, and they go back to the witch trials, and they have such unique tombstones there because they're very thin. You don't find those anywhere else other than mostly in New England. Yeah, I remember you pointing that out to Jared. And of course, I think he really got a kick out of the skull heads that they have on the tombstones there, too. Yeah, I think they're called death heads. It's the skull with the wings on either side. Yeah, that's another one of the only places that you really see anything like that. Next to the old Bearing Point Cemetery, there's the Witch Trials Memorial, which is really moving as well. Each victim has their own, like, I guess you call it a bench, and they're made out of, I think it's granite, or I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what kind of stone they made that out of. Yeah, it's like a bench that projects from the wall. So it, it's something that you can sit on, but it's part of the masonry of the actual wall itself. It's really, really unique. And a lot of people do tend to leave flowers and other trinkets there. Yeah, so you have those two things there, and then right next to that's this large cottage that now serves as the offices for the cemetery. The house sat across the street from the witch dungeon until it was moved in 1910. Today, the house is used as storage for the Peabody Essex Museum. Full-bodied apparitions have been seen and photographed in the house. One night, an employee was in the building by herself when she heard the door open and heard footsteps. She called out and got no answer. She investigated and saw nothing. She returned to what she was doing and heard the footsteps again. They seemed to be climbing the stairs towards her. She was afraid that someone had broken in and that she was in danger. She ran terrified from the building and never returned. It really is a cute little cottage, and I love the windows. Yeah, me too. And we all took our turn looking in through the windows. Can we see anything in there? <laughs> this is true. And next we have the witch house. One of the prominent figures in the witch trials was a man named Jonathan Corwin. George Corwin arrived in Salem in 1638 with his wife, Elizabeth. George was a shipbuilder and a wealthy merchant. Their son, Jonathan, was born in 1640 in Salem. He followed in his father's footsteps as a merchant and eventually got involved with the government. He was elected to the Colonial Assembly and became a magistrate for the local courts. He married Elizabeth Gibbs, a widow, in 1675. That same year, he bought one of the larger homes in the town that would come to be known as the Jonathan Corwin House and later the Witch House. This is the only structure still standing in Salem with direct ties to the Salem Witch Trials. When another judge was reluctant to continue forward with the trials, Jonathan stepped in, signing arrest warrants and taking part in hearings. The result of these trials would be the deaths of 19 people. Legends have cropped up around the house that the souls of those convicted of witchcraft haunt the home, and other tales claim that women were tortured there to get their confessions. There is no truth to the rumors of torture, but something is haunting the former home of Jonathan Corwin. Ghost Adventures visited the witch house in 2011. The batteries on their equipment kept dying. The investigators believe they captured an EVP of Bridget Bishop because the voice said, Apple. They also picked up a child humming. Elizabeth Peterson, who was director of the house when Ghost Adventures investigated, said she'd heard things in the house and her son had seen things. She doesn't believe anything malevolent is in the house. People claim to hear disembodied footsteps and see shadows in the upper floors. Psychics have claimed one of the ghosts belongs to a servant who was hiding an illegitimate pregnancy. And another spirit belongs to an angry man that hangs out on the first level. 
Tour guide Lara J. recounted in an episode of Haunted History that she was once reading off the names of those executed during the trials to two visitors, and a tin sconce flew off the wall. She also said, I saw a shadow pass on the other side of the door. I went in the room, and no one was there. I couldn't grasp that what I saw wasn't a living human being walking through the door, that it wasn't a human shadow. And Ghost Adventures, I think, gave the witch house a bitter taste for paranormal investigating. They weren't allowing anyone to do it, and they managed to convince them to let them come in. And they've never let anybody do it since, so you cannot investigate this place. But the tour guides will tell you plenty of stories, and we actually did an episode featuring the witch house, and we had one of the former tour guides join us for that. So I can't remember what episode it is. And now on to the Old Witch Jail, which was built between 1683 and 1684. This was constructed from hand-hewn oak timbers. The cells were small and there was no bedding. Prisoners were starved and given no water unless they could pay for it. Several people died in prison due to the bad conditions. The jail was eventually torn down and a house was built on the property using the timbers from the jail. The family who lived in the house turned it into a tourist attraction and built a replica of the dungeon. Thousands came through the Old Witch Jail and Dungeon. Then that was torn down and a building replaced it that housed the New England Telephone Company in 1956. Employees have been reluctant to use the landlines in the building because occasionally the screams of the tortured come through the lines. So you can imagine they pick up the phone. Hello? Hello? Ah! People claim to have been touched and pushed inside the building. It's believed that one of the spirits belongs to an angry former guard. His full body apparition has been seen. Two beams were found when the digging on the new building began. It's believed those beams were part of the dungeon. One is now on display at the Witch Dungeon Museum, and employees claim the beam is a haunted artifact. Twice when the beam was photographed, a woman in period clothing appeared behind the beam in the photos. And then we have Gallows Hill. This was the place where 19 of the accused and convicted were executed by hanging. Nathaniel Hawthorne was the great-grandson of Judge John Hawthorne, who sentenced most of those who were executed. He would have had knowledge of where this location was, as did the families of the accused. This knowledge would have been handed down through the generations, and it's clear that Nathaniel Hawthorne knew where Gallows Hill was located. He wrote in Alice Stone's Appeal in 1835, This was the field where superstition won her darkest triumph, the high place where our fathers set up their shame, to the mournful gaze of generations far remote. The dust of martyrs was beneath our feet. We stood on Gallows Hill. This was a forlorn patch of land described as scattered patches of soil that are too thin to tempt cultivation, and the rock is too craggy and steep to allow occupation. That location is thought to be behind, of all places, Kelly, a Walgreens at 59 Boston Street, and is formerly known as Proctor's Ledge. And it's the one location in Salem that we did not manage to get to. No, we didn't get to this one. Unfortunately, You know, I don't know how much there is to see behind the Walgreens anyway. Is over there by the dumpsters where the gallows was? Oh, good grief. <laughs> people believe that something evil remains here. Innocent people were put to death and their bodies summarily hurled into a crevice, unworthy of a Christian burial. The disembodied shrieking of voices is heard. Full-bodied apparitions are spotted nearby. People who visit sometimes burst into tears and feel a sense of foreboding. Neighbors are awakened by knocking and thumping. Well, this was a great town. Love the Salem Witch Museum. What did you guys think of it? They told a really great story. You know, they, they covered all the history, all the facts, how everything played out. The diorama part 
with the mannequins and so forth mm-hmm. is a little bit hokey. You know, it's it's a little aged it's and dated. so forth. Yeah, it's dated. <laughs> Since I'd already been through it once when I was a kid and then as an adult, I took the dogs while you guys went through you and Jared and I went across to the park that's there and they actually had some live jazz they were doing. So I did a little Facebook live for the Spooktacular crew and all that. But I was like, anytime somebody goes there, you really need to go through that museum because it just has such a great history and really gives you a feel for what it was like. And, you know, if you can get past the dated part of it maybe eventually they'll be able to update it a little bit more but you know i don't know how much money they make with it and stuff true well we thoroughly enjoyed it i mean it was historically fantastic but yeah it it, they do need to do maybe a little bit of updating with the mannequins and we stayed in a hotel that was over in danbury and it was really neat because we'd have to drive all the side streets to get to the downtown area of salem there and so we got to see all the glorious victorian homes oh my gosh it was so amazing (laughs) and just everything in the city is so aged and stuff and it's so cool to get to see a lot of the locations that were in the hocus pocus movie and now we've got you know hocus pocus 2 is getting ready to come out so it just it gives you this wonderful air and i know a lot of people want to go when it's halloween we decided we didn't want to do it then. Right. Jared was like, I really want to go to Salem. We're like, we'll go, but not in October. Yeah, it's just too busy during that time. And we really wanted to be able to take our time and explore. I I don't need to be in the city with a million people. The energy there is not going to be any different other than it's just going to be a ton of people and chaotic. And I don't like crowds anyway. So Sure. But you got to go into the stores and get your T-shirt. And there was a lot of stores that have oddities in them and stuff. So we had fun going through all those and everything, too. And our meal at Rockefeller's was amazing. Oh, my gosh. So good. Oh, it was so good. And we ate out on the patio with the dogs. And the cool thing about Rockefeller's is it's a haunted location, which we, I believe we featured it. Did we do it as a bonus cast? I think we did it as a bonus cast. I think it was, but I'm not certain. Love Salem. Definitely need to get back there and take Jared for a little bit longer. Salem just seems to have a spooky air about it. Is it just because of its notorious past or are the undead very active in this city? Have we learned our lessons from the Salem Witch Trials? Is Salem haunted not only by its past, but by spirits? That is for you to decide. Thank you for joining us for the Salem Witch Trials Redux. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.